What motivates some intelligent and compassionate people to exhaust so much time and energy in favor of the COVID vaccination? What are some of their thoughts about the doctors and other professional people who offer a critical perspective against the jab? What are these personalities' response to the vaccine adverse event results system, which many consider irrefutable proof of a faulty formula? Is there a possibility of breaking through to these individuals with tales of the corrosive influence of big pharma on the entire healthcare system? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we present a perspective on our COVID crisis with one of the more conventional experts offering insights into how she deals with the educating the public about V the virus and getting what she calls life-saving information into people's minds before it's too late. My guest for the hour is Associate Professor and Infectious Disease Research Scientist, Dr. Tara Moriarty. On this week's program, Sincere Devotion to the Vaccine, Encounters with a COVID Believer. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of December 10th, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are featured on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. In short, the Pfizer document, which was never supposed to see the light of day but was disclosed as part of a FOIA suit, describes the adverse effects from just the first three months of injections with the company's COVID vaccine. 158,000 adverse events, 1,223 deaths. In a half-sane world, this would have been more than enough to halt all injections and cancel the vaccine. I've queried two attorneys. They both looked at the Pfizer document and state they believe it's authentic. That comes from the article, Pfizer Spoking Gun, Secret Document, Their Deadly COVID Vaccine. By John Rapoport, posted December 8th, originally published on John Rapoport's blog. The myth of Pearl Harbor as a surprise attack serves to validate the popular perception of World War II as a morally righteous or quote-unquote good war. This perception has provided legitimacy to U.S. overseas pursuits for the last 80 years. Historian Stephen Snigowski wrote in his 2004 essay, The Case for Pearl Harbor Revisionism, that, quote, the good war scenario still serves a vital purpose as America marches forward to make the world safe from terrorism, unquote, or institutionalizes a new Cold War with China and Russia. 
It is no surprise as such that popular commemorations of Pearl Harbor's 80-year anniversary have repeated the official narrative and focused on the victims of the attack rather than raising critical questions about U.S. governmental conduct. That comes from the article, 80 Years of Lies, President Franklin Roosevelt told public Pearl Harbor was a surprise attack. However, there is considerable evidence demonstrating government foreknowledge. By Jeremy Kuzmarov, posted December 8th, originally published in Covert Action magazine. Character assassination of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is what the CIA and its media mouthpieces have been doing for years. This has become more and more necessary as they have realized the great growing danger he poses to their agenda. Calling him an anti-vaxxer, conspiracy theorist, and names far worse is part of a concerted smear campaign to turn the public away from his message, which is multifaceted and supported by deep research and impeccable logic. Like his father and uncle, he has become an irrepressibly eloquent opponent of the demonic forces intent on destroying the democratic dream. With the real Fauci, Bill Gates, Big Pharma, and the global war on democracy and public health, he has pinned his indictment of those forces to the world's wall for all to read. That comes from the article, Robert Francis Kennedy Jr.'s Heroic Resistance to the CIA's Continuing COVID Coup d'État by Edward Curtin, posted December 8th. As Miss Conrad has detailed, her hospital serves a community in which less than 50% of the individuals were vaccinated for COVID-19, but yet, during the same time period, approximately 90% of the individuals admitted to her hospital were documented to have received this vaccine. These patients were admitted for a variety of reasons, including, but not limited to, COVID-19 infections. Even more troubling is that there were many individuals who were young, many who presented with unusual or unexpected health events, and many who were admitted months after vaccination. One would think that after an association was identified by a healthcare professional, our health authorities would at least review this finding, right? Sadly, when Ms. Conrad reached out to health authorities herself, she was ignored. That comes from the article, FDA and CDC ignore damning report. 90 plus percent of hospitals admissions were vaccinated for COVID-19, originally published on Covert Geopolitics. I wrote this article a year ago, and now we have entered a new phase. The vaccine passport is being imposed in a large number of countries, and those who refuse to get the quote-unquote vaccine are categorized as quote-unquote antisocial psychopaths. So-called peer-reviewed reports are now categorizing those who refuse the face mask, social distancing, confinement, and the vaccine of having quote Antisocial personality disorders. Unquote. That comes from the introduction of a previously published article under the headline Collective Narcissism 
and the dark triad. Those who protest against the official COVID-19 narrative are categorized as psychopaths. Is it a witch hunt? By Professor Michelle Chosodovsky, posted December 8th. When I read the report by Australian Haley Hodgson in RT.de today, I thought on the one hand of the depressing interviews of Holocaust survivor Vera Sharav and her fellow sufferers, and on the other hand as the famous quote by the German Protestant theologian and leading representative of the confessing church, Martin Niemöller, quote, when the Nazis took the communists, unquote, Pastor Niemöller developed into a resistance fighter against Nazism in the Sachsenhausen concentration camp. Mrs. Hodgson spent 14 days continuously healthy and tested negative at the Howard Springs quarantine camp near Darwin in the Australian Federal Territory of Northern Territory. In an interview, she reported that she felt like a criminal and was not allowed to leave the camp early. As she could not go to work for 14 days, she also lost her job. That comes from the article, We citizens are being psychologically attacked with the aim that we obediently march towards the abyss. By Dr. Rudolf Hansel, posted December 8th. There is no causal relationship between the microscopic SARS-2 virus and economic variables. It's the powerful financiers and billionaires who are behind this project which has contributed to the destabilization worldwide of the real economy. And there is ample evidence that the decision to close down a national economy resulting in poverty and unemployment will inevitably have an impact on patterns of morbidity and mortality. Since early February 2020, the super-rich have cashed in on billions of dollars. Amply documented, it's the largest redistribution of global wealth in world history, accompanied by a process of worldwide impoverishment. That was from the introduction to a bit shoot video under the headline, Video, The COVID-19 Crisis Triggers Economic and Social Chaos Worldwide, by Professor Michelle Chosodovsky and by myself, Michael Welch, posted December 8th. With a growing hostility to the U.S. and a shift to state rather than private enterprises, economic vitality seems to be draining. Major power cuts in cities and COVID cases are also taking a toll. COVID has dampened international demand for goods manufactured in China, and the country is no longer the answer it once was to the question, where will global growth come from? Courier services, delivering everything from hot meals to medicines with long hours demanded for low wages, are mushrooming in Chinese cities, but that means that people are spending less in the actual shops. That comes from the article, Xi Jinping's Challenges, China's Deep-Seated Economic and Social Crisis, by Tom Clifford, posted December 8th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar.
As we've seen on the show, several episodes, including the one with James Lyons Wheeler last week, we've generated considerable sensitivity uh, among our listenership. The station CKUW in particular has received complaints in this regard. So we thought we would interview someone with a, a little more traditional approach dealing with the pandemic and the vaccine. While that might disappoint some of our audience, I hope you can see that we are providing a broader range of coverage of the issue from all angles compared to, let's say, the mainstream media broadcasts. And it was good for me to compare notes with a quite friendly guest. So, well, here is our conversation recorded last Wednesday. Hope you enjoy it. Um, I have a, a guest with me to, to talk more on this, uh, the topic of the, uh, the, the COVID-19. And it's all some of the, the understandings that we have, but we don't have uh, misguidance, uh, some of the experts we've talked to. Uh, Dr. Tara Moriarty is an associate professor at the University of Toronto in the Faculty of Dentistry with a cross appointment to the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathobiology in the Faculty of Medicine. Dr. Moriarty received her PhD in anatomy and cell biology at McGill University and completed her postdoctoral training in biochemistry and molecular biology, molecular microbiology and infectious diseases at the University of Calgary. In 2012, she was awarded the CIHR Bhagirath Singh Early Career Award in Infection and Immunity. Dr. Moriarty is a co-founder of the COVID-19 Resources Canada, a CanCOVID and a hashtag science up first and is active in health misinformation responses and research. Dr. Moriarty is the principal investigator in the Moriarty Lab the Moriarty Lab is an infectious diseases research laboratory which studies several fundamental mechanisms underlying bloodborne dissemination of bacterial pathogens. The major model organism under the study is Borrelia burgdorferi, the causative agent of Lyme disease. Currently, she's involved in the nightly Zoom meetings, messages to the public to cure them of misinformation about COVID-19. And we'll investigate for the hour uh, or, or whatever portion we can share with us her uh, thoughts about the messaging around COVID vaccination, the safety and efficacy around the drug. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Moriarty. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm always happy for any opportunity to talk about the vaccines and to let people know what kind of support um, that we have available if you're someone who's not yet vaccinated because you're worried about them, and if you are someone who uh, is worried about others who are not vaccinated um, and who you want to support. It's really, really important, especially now um, as we're coming into winter, we're seeing cases rise a lot. Um, we know that there probably will be an additional uh, 25 to 30,000 deaths from COVID-19 in Canada. Um, among unvaccinated people um, before, um, by the time everyone is exposed. So it's absolutely urgent um, to be reaching people who are not yet vaccinated so that people understand their risk, um, but also so that people can ask the questions they wanna ask about the vaccines and, and be able to access um, anonymous free resources where you can uh, talk about them without fear of being ridiculed. 
Okay. Well, Dor Dr. Moriarty, you're, you're very busy uh, and perhaps more busy now with uh, Omicron and what, whatnot than uh, uh, with the other uh, times of the year. Um, so we greatly appreciate your taking the time to talk with us. Could you talk a, a little bit more about the, the kinds of questions that typically come up in, in your, your Zoom sessions? Yeah, so, you know, the, it's the same, a lot of the same questions that we've had since the very beginning. We started this on January 4th of this year, um, and we still um, hear people, um, we still, still hear concerns that they were developed too quickly. Um, people don't realize that all of the normal regulatory processes were followed, all of the normal um, testing um, was followed. Um, People don't understand kind of the back history of the mRNA vaccines um, and that they already were being tested and used in other settings like cancer treatment, for example. So it's not actually a new technology. It's just our awareness of it is new. Um, and so we get a lot of questions about that and we get a lot of, we still get a lot of questions about um, people are concerned that the vaccines might affect fertility, um, which is not true. Um, this is uh, um, completely fabricated misinformation, but it's causing a lot of challenges. And um, there also is reason, enormous reason for concern, which is that a lot of um, pregnant women or women who are wanting to get pregnant are still not getting vaccinated, even though they're at substantially greater risk of severe, severe COVID-19 than women who are not pregnant. Um, so there's a lot of concern about that because, um, it, you know, moms are ending up in the ICU and with serious illness that can affect, uh, that does affect both them and um, their unborn baby. So uh, we're really, there's still lots of questions around that. Um, and it's imperative that people understand that um, pregnancy increases your risk of, of COVID-19 and that uh, pregnant women should be running to get vaccinated to protect themselves and their babies. So those are really common things that we hear a lot. Um, there will always be specific questions that will come up depending on where we are. So for example, early on, um, you know, there were, so when we were talking about myocarditis and the, those early safety signals were coming up for myocarditis, there were lots of questions then. Um, there are currently lots of questions about um, uh, kids 5 to 11. Um, so it kind of depends on the, the where we are, what the questions are. And then, you know, the enduring ones are, were these developed too fast? And how do we know they're safe? Well, I find a lot of the, the questions that, that spring not, not only come from lay people like myself, but also... Yeah from doctors and, and uh, nurses and, and lawyers, I, I, I find that there's a, a pit of nurses and doctors, a, a minority I'll grant, but who, who criticize the vaccine and, and, and the plan not to take it. And, and there are federal employees who've been mandated to get the shot and, and some are, are literally going to lose their jobs rather than take a shot. I mean, that's like the, the legislation in place. I mean, wow. I mean, that's devotion. Yeah. I mean, have, have, have yeah. any of those individuals touched on, on your, your group? Um, so, um, it, it, sorry, in terms of touching on our group, what, what do you mean specifically by that? Although the Zoom meetings or, or you know, other, or touch base with you individually? 
Oh, so we have we have spoken over time um, with uh, many people who, um, especially early on, um, very very early on when the vaccines were first available for long term care for people living in long term care, there was very little information about them, and people were frightened. They they really had no ability to get information. So we were one of the early sources where people could actually come and ask questions. And we, we talked to a lot of people then, um, and a lot of people who then came back, um, who would have other questions as, as new news came up. Um, so what I would say is, you know, in, in any profession, in any, um, in, in any walk of life, there are, there will always be some people who don't agree with, um, the way things are, are done. Um, there's there's no question that the, the vaccines that are available in Canada are safe and, um, and are really effective at preventing severe disease. They're not perfect. Um, they're not perfect at blocking transmission, but we always knew that, that, might, that they might not completely block transmission. They reduce it by about 50 to 75%, which on a population level is a big deal. That's very helpful. Mm. But there always will be people who, um, you know, for whatever reason, don't agree with the, the, um, the large uh, majority of, uh, or sort of the large consensus of professional opinion on a topic and, um, and it's always going to be true, right? Um, they're, they're a very tiny minority. So, um, you know, the, certainly among physicians, um, something like 90, 98 or 99% of all physicians are vaccinated. Um, you know, it's, it's among scientists, for example, most any of us who work in infectious diseases or who have knowledge of vaccines, we're all fully vaccinated. Our families are, um, if they're out, like if our family members are eligible, um, but there'll always be some who who don't um, agree, and and in some cases there have been individuals who've been um, who more in the U.S. I think than in Canada who've been monetizing this as well, and monetizing some of this polarization around vaccines to offer, for example, you know, people can call up and get, um, you know, I don't know, ivermectin prescriptions, for example, and they'll charge for that. Um, so there's always, you know, there are always people who are also um, uh, opportunistic, right, about how they, um, uh, about how they use their credentials. And, um, and anyway, and I think over time, we're starting to see uh, certainly we're seeing, um, you know, the Canadian medical, the various provincial medical associations, some people are, um, some physicians, for example, who are writing um, exemptions or who are uh, not um, following evidence-based recommendations um, are, they are being sanctioned now. So this process is very slow, but um if they're really operating, if they, what they're recommending is genuinely unsafe for the general public, then um, slowly there are sanctions that are being put in place. But, you know, you'll always have some people who disagree, but they're a tiny minority um, when it comes to 
when it comes to the medical profession. Well, I, I know that there's a, I mean, there's a, a list of doctors and they've, they've gone out and they even, they call themselves the doctors for COVID ethics. And, and a lot of them seem highly ranked individuals, you know, Sukharat Bhakti and, uh, you know, a whole, whole bunch of other people. Um, but yeah. maybe, what, what, do you mean, what do you mean by highly ranked? Yeah, well, I mean, well, I mean, in, in terms of their, their records, you know, in terms of, for example, having uh, being on the chair of, uh, of a major corporation. I mean, uh, you know, Sukhrad Bhakti, for example, he taught uh, universe, in uh, Germany, he taught these uh, courses on uh, immunology for 35 years. He was, he was well ranked, yeah. he published over 300 articles. He's, he's retired now, but yeah. he's, he's speaking out quite forcefully, you know, as an example. So, I mean, that's, yeah. you know, a little bit hard to, and then he does s state some very scientific rationales for uh, why he uh, functions the way he does. I mean, I think a lot of them are suggesting that uh, it's like, kind of like, you know, Anthony Fauci is, uh, you know, doing things that are, uh, you know, at, to the advantage of the, the pharmaceutical corporations as opposed to science. I mean, it's basically for a form of regulatory capture that uh, allows, yeah. It to, yeah. So. Well, you know, what I, what I would say, yeah. here's what I would say is that this is the difficult thing, right? So some people who are, it sounds like it's scientific and they may well have, you know, a, a, a proceeding, a long history of, you know, contributions in different ways that have been important. Um, people can hold different views, but, but the evidence that they cite um, the, so what characterizes, I would say, um, people who, um, have gone on to, um, you know, make these, make these claims about the vaccines not being warranted and everything else is that they're not, um, they're really not considering the enormous amount of evidence that we have now, um, about the vaccines. Um, they are um, they are choosing to ignore a lot of it. They're not functioning as scientists need to function, which is to consider in totality um, what the evidence uh, what the evidence uh, indicates or suggests. So they're not in this respect uh, functioning the way they were supposed to as scientists. And it's pretty hard if you're not a scientist, if you come from outside, it may sound sciencey, it may sound compelling. Um, but if you don't know all of the literature that's out there, um, you don't necessarily know that they're, they're leaving out a lot of really important stuff or that they're, or that they're in some cases, um, really, um, distorting um, both the data and the interpretation of that data. Um, and it's very hard. And so, for example, most uh, scientists and, and um, physicians and others who uh, really want to make sure that people are vaccinated um, are, uh, we spend a lot of time trying to explain exactly why these individuals are um, distorting or presenting things in a way that's not correct um, and that they know is not correct as well. Um, and we spend a lot of time dealing with it, but it's a very hard thing to overcome because people who are not trained the way we are don't always recognize the, the, um, 
the way it's being um, the way it's being done to sound like it's science and and yet it's not. But you know, science in general, what's important to remember is that science is this thing where new evidence comes out and things that get adjusted. New evidence comes out the way we think gets adjusted. That process is really important. That process doesn't have to depend on individuals and individual credentials. So the scientific consensus can be wrong, um, but, and it, you know, it can correct in different ways over time. Um, some of the assumptions can be wrong, but in general, especially when it comes to something like this, where you have such an enormous number of experts worldwide who are working on this and thinking about it, What's really important for people to look at is what the, the general consensus is on where we are and look at how that's developing and emerging because uh, these discussions um, and looking at the data and looking at new data that come out are something that are constantly ongoing and being revised. And that's where people who don't have that training and aren't reading the primary literature should be looking um, because that reflects, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people who you're not necessarily seeing who are contributing to that process and who have enormous expertise. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Maybe maybe we should just start start talking about uh, the, the VAERS statistics. I mean, that's... Uh, where you know, the various statistics are print, printed every two weeks and they list the number of deaths, hospitalizations and severe injuries associated with the vaccines. Um, we see that uh, 927,740 is the number of adverse reactions to, this, to the COVID vaccines. Yeah. And uh, you know, of those, I think 99,943 hospitalizations uh, 331,652 permanent disabilities after vaccination and 19,532 deaths. That's going up to November 26th of last month. Now, those numbers yeah. are pretty large, so, Mike, worrying, I think. So, yeah. So, well, yes. So, Michael, do you know how VARES works? Yes. Uh, they basically, it's, uh, it's, some, it's voluntary and people can send yeah. in their, uh, their, their reports of, uh, of, all, of, of any injuries that, which they think might be associated with the vaccine. And uh, yeah. yeah, so about one to 10%, they estimate to actually uh, do that, so. Yeah, so then, okay, so then once those get sent in, those reports get sent in, do you know what happens after that? So, so those are the initial reports, but then there's a whole bunch of, of other stuff that happens behind the scenes. Okay. that turns into what so those various reports have to be uh confirmed and yeah. validated right so yeah. the actual confirmed events are things that the cdc or health canada would actually report but the various is what people have originally reported so the second step is that once they've been reported because VAERS doesn't rely on medical professionals to yeah. submit anyone can submit then they need to document, right? They need to go, they need to get the medical records that document um, a particular event occurring. So that all happens behind the scenes. 
And then after that, um, statisticians then have to look at whether, say, in a particular age group or whatever, they need to look at whether something occurs statistically significantly more often than it does in the general population that's not vaccinated. So all of that happens behind the scenes. So VAERS is the is kind of like the raw stuff that everyone submits, but then there's all of that checking and confirmation and all of the statistical analysis. And and that is what you would see, say the the FDA reporting on or Health Canada. Um, So in Canada, for example, you can go look at, um, there's a Health Canada website that helps, that provides information about that after after things have been confirmed, investigated and, and everything else. So VAERS is just the raw input. It would be, it's exactly like kind of going on social media and just saying, you know, um, you, you could just, you know, I don't know, tell me whether you had adverse events and submit them here. Um, anyone can reply, anyone can, you know, anyone can input information, but that still has to be confirmed. So that's why VAERS looks well, like that um, initially, but then there's all of the, there's all of the confirmation that has to happen and the checking to make well, sure that the information it, is correct. It seems, yeah, I mean, it, the, the, the numbers though are fairly large and, and I, I know that there, uh, there's been a, a couple of independent studies, uh, uh, you know, one by uh, Jessica Rose, another by Scott McLaughlin, and they, on, they said that, well, well, they're not necessarily all uh, you know, rep- represent, representing actual deaths. I mean, they, at least 86% are, you know, it's, it's hard to find any other cause. And the, the fact is that, I mean, so, like, but, but how, what did they base that on? They didn't have access to any of the documentation. Well, right? They had, they had access to it. Yeah. They had access to all the documentation. Yeah. It was all uh, the medical record. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, the, the long term so, Sorry, well, but just, but just in terms of how they had access to it, mm-hmm. how would they have? Because this well, is it, very- they, they, They'd gotten it from, the, they got it. They, they got hold of it from their, their indoor. I mean, they, 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 like, I think two of the only people who got access to that information. I mean, after doing a, a study, so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You might want to check, right? I mean, people can make those claims, but that process of accessing that information, I mean, it's very, it's medical information, right? Yeah. Yeah. I know. Study ethics, all that are required for that. Um, So you want to be careful, right? About people who are making claims about having access to the fully uh, validated and medically documented stuff, because in some cases I've actually seen a lot of those claims and it's not, true they're not providing the the types of documentation that you would see in a paper that would actually indicate that they did in fact have access to that kind of information because there's a whole um, protocol for it you know a paper that or a study that actually had access legitimately um, would describe a, a bunch of aspects of it that are not present in some of the the claims that i've seen and so then after that there's the statistical part yeah. Um, and for that, you need like expert demographers, right? So, for example, in Canada, that is done with Statistics Canada. Like it, it is, it is not a trivial 
thing to do. It requires really detailed information about national causes of death, trends, everything else. So these are these papers are. I got uh, it at ResearchGate. So, <laughs> um, but I mean, when you look at the, the yeah. deaths over history, I mean, like you, it seems as if there's a, a, a like sort of a thin line, you know, from 1990 all the way up to 2020, and then it just spikes up really high, you know, as a result of this. I mean, this vaccine being, you know, basically outnumbering all of the other uh, vaccines that yeah, uh, but, but history, all Michael, of these are Michael, Michael, these are not, you know, if you look at the actual CDC, if you look at the actual FDA or Health Canada data that have gone through that whole confirmation process, these are not true, right? So you have to actually look at those data, not what other people are making claims about, not at, you know, the raw data from theirs. You need to look at the data that have actually where the medical records have been confirmed and the statistical analysis has been done. Well, this you've got to get that information from Health Canada or the FDA, right? Or other, you know, the regulatory agencies for if you don't trust the FDA, for example, Health Canada or the European Medicines Agency or any other, you know, independent national body that is responsible for um, for doing this uh, analysis and reporting. And, you know, these bodies have have concluded that uh, and and the data is always being available, but these these bodies have concluded that um, that these vaccines have a have a have a better safety record than pretty much any other vaccine that's been available in history, right? So what you're saying is directly in contradiction to what all of these different uh, national um, uh, agencies, regulatory agencies responsible for reporting on this and everything else for what they're saying. And they're the only ones who have access to the line by line information that you need to do this analysis. They're the only ones that have the statisticians that can do this. So those are the people you really want to, you wanna look at what they're reporting, right? Mm. And, and that's what you want to, unless, you know, if you don't trust those agencies, that's another thing, right? Like well, people yes, may not because, trust I mean, see, agencies, and I understand that. Yeah, because I mean, they, yeah. they're financed, like the majority of their financing comes from uh, the pharmaceutical corporations so i mean it's like if so, if, if so the FDA was mostly the majority of coal or oil on oil industry you'd be so, suspicious of their own appraisal okay. of uh, their own you know res restrictions that they would offer to them so if I mean, yeah so the, the CDC, thing that i'm talking so, about so, right, you know, regulatory yeah, I know, but, but the, yeah but the public record you know indicates that the the very large majority of the funding for the cdc comes from the federal government. In Canada, Health Canada is entirely funded by taxes. It's entirely publicly funded. They don't have funding from, from other sources. Hmm. So, and, and most agencies around the world are entirely publicly funded by our taxes. So even for example, if you're concerned about the CDC, I mean, you need to go and look at what their financial records are, The you know, the, the, the record, the budgets and stuff from Congress and everything else, but they are uh, almost entirely funded 
by federal dollars. And even if you're concerned about that in the US, in Canada, we're entirely funded by public dollars, hmm. Health Canada. And the European Medicines Agency is similar. Yeah, well, don't they charge user fees or something like that that come from these, uh, these tax corporations? I know that was a, there was a- um, what, 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 what do you mean about user fees? Well, they, they basically charged the, uh, the, the, the companies that are, that is a way of, of speeding up the process. This is in 2017, I believe, in which it was. Uh, um, so, well, when companies want to submit um, something for regulatory approval, um, they do pay, they have to pay some fee associated with some of the, the labor that's associated with that. Um, so, it basically prevents, it's actually not enormous, um, but it's, it prevents, um, you know, people can be submitting stuff all the time, right? Um, and, and these are federal, these are public agencies, they have limited funds. So um, they do sub need, to sub need to pay some fee to help defray the cost of processing. Um, and, but apart from that, there are no, uh, you know, they don't pay, extra to speed things up that's um you know it's just you're going to be in line and if there's an enormous need for something an enormous public need then something may be sped up but the company that's submitting doesn't have to pay more funds for that that's something that the agency will decide to accelerate if they think there's a pressing need and that's what happened right with the covid vaccines was that you know normally the regulatory paperwork for this just the processing of it would take, say in Canada, for Health Canada, it might take a couple of years, right? Because we have limited resources. Um, but what happened for the vaccines was that the COVID vaccines is that there was such an urgent public need that all kinds of people in Health Canada were, um, were uh, seconded. So people, all kinds of people were working on this to expedite the process before the vaccines were available. I mean, I had colleagues who people were sleeping in their offices. They were working yeah. around the clock, trying to process all the paperwork to get it done. And it was an all hands on deck situation because there was such an urgent need for it. Um, but that's how things happen. And it was an enormous, you know, it was, uh, the need was so urgent, right? That that was how public health agencies um, that's how they did it, right? With the, with the resources they have. But there's no paying extra to be sped up or any of that. Um, it's just, if there's a need, um, if there's an urgent need for something, then it will be prioritized. Um, but yeah, no, people don't, you know, companies don't pay extra to be able to go to the head of the line. Moriarty, I want to draw your attention to, to warnings about heart health complications that have begun to rise in relation to the vaccine. Uh, an Israeli real-time news investigation revealed that there was a five-fold increase in sudden cardiac and unexplained deaths uh, among FIFA players in 2021. I mean, since December, 183 professional athletes and coaches have suddenly collapsed and 108 died. Like 108 died. That seems pretty significant to me. 
and uh, a report that was released, I'm sure you remember, uh, in last September by Public Health Ontario found that there were uh, there were 417 reports of myocarditis and uh, or pericarditis following receipt of the COVID-19 mRNA vaccines in Ontario as of September 4th, and that 284 of those reports met the Brighton collaboration case definition levels of uh, diagnostic certainty one, two, or three for myocarditis or pericarditis. The majority were under yeah. 25 and were male. Yeah. Uh, could you walk us yeah. through the argument of, of dispelling vaccine hesitance in the face of rep yeah. reports like that. Yeah. So yeah, no, that's a great question. It's one of the most common ones that, that I hear, certainly. So um, to step back a bit, um, so myocarditis is something that um, it happens. So it's something that is seen in response to infections, in response to um, sort of in general, um, in response to um, a number of different um, sort of conditions that might cause um, an immune response. And for reasons that are not fully understood, in general, unrelated to COVID-19 or the COVID-19 vaccines, one of the things we know about my myocarditis is that it generally affects um, uh, uh, boys or young men after puberty up to the age of about 30. And this has been known about myocarditis for years. Um, it's a feature of it. And, and what's seen after the COVID-19 vaccines is, is right, like it's very similar to that. So it's not fully understood why, but it seems to be in young men um, and uh, you know uh, teenaged boys, um, there seems to be a vulnerability probably related to you know heart development. Um, to myocarditis in general um, in response to a whole range of infections and, and um, inflammatory kinds of circumstances. So, so, and it's not clear why girls and young women aren't particularly susceptible. Um, so what we know about the, the COVID-19 vaccine is that the rates of myocarditis that it induces are um, pretty similar actually to what you um, see um, uh, associated with other types of uh, Sort of inflammatory conditions in young men but it's still higher than what you would expect in a population that hadn't been exposed to something infectious but we also know that in this age group COVID-19 itself is five times more likely to cause um, to cause myocarditis than the vaccines so this is why these vaccines are still uh, recommended um, and and part of that is also because myocarditis, myocarditis has um, pretty clear symptoms and generally it's highly treatable. So myocarditis is typically treated with the equivalent of, you know, Tylenol, basically um, arrhythmia. Um, they may be monitored more closely. Um, it doesn't mean that people shouldn't be monitored closely, um, but it's act um, and to, to treat. So because COVID is causes a much greater risk of myocarditis than the vaccines. That's why they're recommended in, um, you know, post-puberty boys and, and young men up to 30, um, despite the fact that myocarditis risk from the vaccine is, is uh, elevated compared to um, non-vaccinated. And it's just because COVID is worse, right? It's, it's you're five times more likely to get it from COVID. So in relation to a lot of these, so there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of sort of unsubstantiated rumors and stories going on, going around about um, about athletes. Um, a lot of them are a lot of them are misinformation. Um, a lot of them are just they're kind of um, not like urban myths, but they sort of spread from one uh, kind of news outlet to another. 
but they're not actually substantiated by um, any kind of documentation of, um, of uh, diagnosis of myocarditis. And in many cases, actually, uh, people who um, have been affected by this have actually had COVID as well. So I would caution people to, a lot of these are rumors, they're kind of, um, there's not really um, you know, evidence to back it up. We don't have, um, we don't have um, evidence to support these kind of anecdotal stories, but we do have a lot of evidence about myocarditis from, um, you know, various regulatory agencies, for example, that have been monitoring this. And, you know, we know about the myocarditis risk because the regulatory agencies saw it very early um, when it was happening. And since that time, since the people who are most likely to be affected have been identified. And uh, once um, uh, the uh, once healthcare providers and others have been alerted and have started alerting people who have the vaccination um, to, to watch for those symptoms and, and uh, go to the hospital if they have them to be checked. Um, there haven't been, so there's been no elevation in myocarditis reporting and, um, and the, the proportion of the population that's affected um, is, is, has stayed stable since it was first noted. Um, so there haven't been any spikes or anything like that. It's a known risk that, uh, that, we, uh, that we watch for and that people are told um, to be careful of. So just like, for example, um, I mean, uh, you know, like Tylenol, for example, Tylenol actually um, can have uh, really bad effects on people. It can cause uh, ir irreversible liver damage, others. So um, there are, um, you know, there are guidelines about how much Tylenol you should take. It doesn't mean that because Tylenol can cause irreversible um, liver damage that you don't make it available to people. You just try to make it clear that people shouldn't take more than a certain amount, right? So in the case of myocarditis, we know that the vaccines are actually more protected, like they protect against COVID myocarditis, um, but you need to make sure people understand what to watch for and when they need to go into the doctor. So that's how that's been handled. But some of those stories, RT is, you know, uh, it's, it is a lot of information, uh, misinformation, sorry, that they will publish and repeat. So I'd be pretty wary about that as a source. And I would look for what the regulatory agencies report. And the European Medicines Agency or um, Association is very, um, they're very proactive and they have, they monitor essentially the whole population of Europe, which is huge. Um, so they're actually a really good resource to look at. I'd like to get back to the discussion about the, the CDC and then the FDA yeah. and charges that the money profits of the, of the big pharmaceutical corporations are a detriment to yeah. science and, and the public good. And then like maybe as, as you suggest to the top, uh, especially in his, his best-selling book, I and mean, we'll have to determine that, but, but to, just to bring up one example, it, it, and it was a point that was brought up by my guest yeah. last week, uh, ACIP, ACIP, which uh, stands for the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, yeah. drilled practices for children and, and adults. And the, the finding was that with the exception of one individual sitting on the US military, each and every single member had a conflict of interest because they were working for specific pharmaceutical vote for their company. Everybody votes for the other guy's vaccine as well, you know, and, and, that, that, and then he alluded in a video how, how well, there was a video showing them the, the discussion of how the, 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 the discussion yeah. of safety held after, you know, and this was about three or four years ago. It's hard to take that kind of practice seriously. I mean, it suggests that, well, the forces of science are colliding with the forces of yeah. money, but, but do you see so, it? So, uh, yeah, so no, I mean, I, 
you know, people do well to be concerned and to watch it be, make sure that no industry has undue influence over um, over public health decisions, for example. It's a long history of, um, uh, you know, we know that it's these. Um, that being said, so for ASIP, I don't know specifically what might have, uh, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know what was, um, what was cited for that. But I see or the FDA is that, you know, these vaccines are being looked at by independently looked at by regulatory agencies around the world, right? So Health Canada, people who work for Health Canada are, they are civil servants. They are, in fact, there are stringent rules about um, what they can, cannot do. They can't, um, you know, they can't accept gifts. They're, I mean, it's, it's the, the, the rules for the civil service are, are, are very strict. Um, and, and Canada, you know, and other countries as well. I mean, we don't have a huge, um, we don't have a huge pharmaceutical industry that can lobby in Canada, right? Um, and this is true in lots of other countries where regulatory agencies have looked independently at these data and come to their conclusions. So I do understand why people are want to be skeptical about, um, you know, I, I do understand that. And I, and I do think that it's, um, important to look at the influence of industry in decision-making. Um, I, I think it is crucial, but in the case of these vaccines, I think that the hallmark is that, you know, around the world, you've had all of these different regulatory agencies look at them. Every one of them gets the, the primary data and then every one of them collects the um, so once the the vaccines are being used, it's the independent recipe and everything else. So for the vaccines that have been out and available now for nearly a year, I mean there are um, hundreds of millions of doses that have been given around the world, um, and um, most of them, of course, in uh, industrialized high income countries that have um, their own regulatory agencies, and these regulatory agencies are you know, have, have um, considerable um, personal person power and expertise to be able to do this work. So I think in this case, in that case, I would say to people, look at, look at the national regulators. If you're not sure, but the CDC or the FDA look to Health Canada or look to the European, you know, look to other regulatory agencies and look at what they're saying and what the consensus of these agencies is. Um, and look at what the majority of scientists like me say. I mean, I don't, I've, you know, I've never had a dime, right, from, from Pfizer or, you know, like I'm a, I'm a my salary, I'm a university professor. My, sci my salary comes from the university and there's nothing, you know, my research grants are related to Lyme disease primarily. And, and they come from, you know, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, their competitive grants. Um, but there are many of us like this, right? And we're looking at the data and we are, we look at it and many people like me are also looking at, we know what happens to people. We know what will happen to people because of COVID in Canada. And that's why I'm still here, right? And that's why I'm doing this with you and with everyone else because I'm really, really worried. Yeah. I mean, we could be seeing as many deaths before the end of the epidemic from COVID as we've seen to date. Mm -hmm. And it's not, really sinking it's not sinking in and just because people don't believe that it's there's so much misinformation right and i it doesn't matter i want people to be okay okay so so and there are a lot of people like doing this yeah well you got definitely have a, a lot of forces on your side uh, you know yeah. in, the, in the thousands yeah. but uh, 
you know, Tara, I'm, I'm really out of time now, yeah. but I want to thank you for coming on, yeah. uh, on the show and then and sharing your information. Yeah, and, and Michael, I know that you have a lot of concerns and that your listeners may have concerns, but I am happy to come back and I'm happy to go through stuff step by step and I'm happy to share whatever I know. Um, and I will, you know, I will, I will share that to the best of my ability um, because it's important to have these conversations. Okay, thank I agree. Uh, thank you very much. You're very welcome. That was my interview with guest Dr. Tara Moriarty. She's an associate professor and infectious disease scientist at the University of Toronto. So there you've seen some of our key points addressed from a, a different perspective. She hasn't quite closed the points uh, of the doctors on the other side, in my view, but just so we have a little clarity, I, I'm not telling people what to think or or what to believe. Uh, I'm presenting much more information that you are hearing from the larger uh, networks. Uh, I am saying, here's one side, here's the other. Now you decide the points for yourself. And uh, keeping your run on research... Uh, I, I'd like to point out there are certain sites where the, you can do more information. Um, alternative coverage on, on the vaccines and COVID is possible. So, for example, there's the last vagabond, the, the last American vagabond.com. There's also unlimitedhangout.com. That's the, the website of the uh, incomparable investigative journalist, Whitney Webb. There's also a great site for the dissident doctor crowd called Doctors for, like number four, covidethics.medium.com. That's Doctors for covidethics.medium.com. There's also Mint Press News, uh, which prints it up uh, along with other details not examined by the mainstream. Feel free to uh, visit rumble.com and bitshoot.com. These are uh, video channels uh, like YouTube, but uh, they uh, permit the, the stuff on vaccines and, and vaccines, uh, uh, the COVID that you're not going to hear on YouTube. And of course, there's also globalresearch.ca. Now on to next week's show. I am planning to cover the the life of the elderly Canadian politician who passed away in August of this year. His name is Paul Hellyer. And uh, he, he, I, I've interviewed him on the show, and I intend to honor his memory, his pursuits, and his steadfast devotion to this country. That's on my December 17th program. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us. Global Research News Hour.